Hi, folks. Well, welcome back to this week's episode of the American Landman Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Hogger, land specialist with Whitetail Properties Real Estate. And this is the American Landman Podcast, where we learn about buying, managing, and selling American land. Well, this uh, podcast episode is part two of a series of uh, food plotting podcasts that I'm going to have late winter, all the way through the spring up until the time when we plant. And I'm bringing on Al Tomechko, who is co-founder and president of Vitalize Seed Company, but he's also a food plotter and a landowner, and frankly, he's a mad scientist of soil health. I've learned so much from Al. He's been so available, and he's going to tell you guys some things that you probably haven't considered, or maybe kind of pull back the veil on some of the questions that you have revolving around soil health. Everything begins with the soil. So if you're interested in improving your property and improving the soil health on your farm, you're going to like this show. If you're a guy that likes to grow deer and get big antlers, everything begins with the soil. This is going to be for you. And if you're an investor and you're looking to buy, manage, and sell American land, as we talk about so often, then soil health is something you might want to consider as a way to differentiate yourself and get a top dollar sale when you go ahead and market that property. So I hope you enjoy that. We're going to take a second out to talk about our sponsors, and then we'll, we'll get right back to the show. And as I say, I'm Neil Hogger. I'm a land specialist for Whitetail Properties Real Estate, and this is the American Landman Podcast. Hey guys, I just want to take a minute to talk about a great seed blend that I have been planting on my farm. I've got about three and a half, maybe four acres in this seed blend by Vitalized Seed Company. And um, so far, I'm really impressed uh, with the system. It's a real simple one-two system. In the fall, which is when I started, I used the carbon load. And carbon load has about 16 seeds in this blend um, from uh, four types of clover. There's four types of brassica. Some are more leafy uh, and others are meant to grow bigger bulbs. There's uh, grasses in the form of wheat and triticale and oats. And it's just a very diverse blend. And it's just a great uh, blend that will attract from the moment it starts popping out of the soil all the way to late season when they're digging up the bulbs and eating eating it. But the reason that I'm really interested in this is because of the soil benefits of this system. So the fall is the carbon load and it's meant to have a lot of volume. It's going to be a great fall attraction for the deer. But in the spring, I'm going to terminate this, uh, this foliage and that is going to lay on top of my soil and it's going to start to feed my soil. And then I'll plant into this the second phase, which is Nitro Boost. And Nitro Boost is meant to sequester nitrogen that's right over the surface of my food plots in the atmosphere. So therefore decreasing the amount of chemical inputs that I'm going to have to put into my soil, which is something I'm trying to my best to get away from. I may not get away from it 100%, but I'm definitely going to reduce my input costs due to this one, two system. So check them out, go to vitalizeseed.com um, and look at the seed blends. And if you're interested, I'm in Western Wisconsin, I can sell this product to you. I have uh, it in stock most likely. And if I can't, I could get it ordered and we'll ship it to you for free. Uh, Vitalize Seed Company, soil benefits with a one, two system, just the way nature intended. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Hey, I've got Al Tomechko on here, owner and or co-owner and founder of Vitalize Seed and the mad scientist of soil health. And I know that this conversation, Al, is uh, going to go on in many different ways. So I'm going to let you do your thing, but I'm going to introduce you. Here you go. Al, it's your show. 
things, Neil. It's great to be back and uh, talking with you about soil and thank yeah. you for a nice introduction. I've been looking forward to this. And as you know, I just sent you a potential client. We're going to turn him into a vitalized client. And uh, he's got some crazy bad soil. Half the time, half the year is flooded. He showed you the pictures. It's very clay-based. And um, when when I was watching or listening or reading the dialogue between you and him on that text, I just thought, all right, he's got the same questions that a lot of people have. And you've been really gracious in helping me and continue to help me. So that's why I want to have you on the show. So we're going to get into it, man. Soil health. All right. Yeah, I love I mean, I love it. I love talking about it. I love helping people. And uh, some buy, some don't. Some just want to have a discussion. But uh, I've been fortunate to have a lot of mentors who've done that for me. You know, they're not trying to and they've just answered a lot of questions that I have because I'm still learning every day. Yeah. In this stuff. So, uh, no, it was a great conversation. I enjoyed texting with him and he had a lot of great questions. I look forward to talking with you today. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I've been uh, planning Vitalize. I was kind of doing this, a similar blend with a uh, competitive product. and um, But I just started following you guys. Uh, let's give uh, Jared a plug of the Habitat uh, podcast. And he's got a great Facebook group and Vitalize has a group. And I started like tapping into you guys. And everything about this soil health thing, it just started clicking. And I thought, these guys are a little bit deeper. I mean, they're they're wildlife guys and they love deer. And it's about we all like to shoot a big one, but these, but you guys take it to a different level. And that started resonating with me. Number one, I want great habitat. I want big deer, but I want healthy soil. That'll get me those big deer. Right. And number two, you, are, you guys all know I buy, manage and sell land and I'm a land specialist, uh, with whitetail properties and that's my role. And so the purpose of this podcast kind of goes beyond just hunters and management, but it goes to investing as well. So those are some of the things kind of like to set up this conversation I'd like to kind of touch on, but I'm going to shut up because people want to hear you talk. Let's start talking about soil health. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And it has, you know, buying and selling land goes, you know, I'm a, I'm a property owner. Um, I'm very blessed to own property and manage property um, between owning and, and a connective lease. Now we're over 350 acres that we're managing. Wow. And one of the things in, in Eastern or Southeastern Ohio that adds a ton of value, especially to people that are looking to buy whitetail property, you know, focused properties, um, is when they come in and see a property and go, wow, look at this plantable acreage. But that does, doesn't just come because it, there's, there's very few flat areas, right? You're in the foothills of Appalachia. There, there's rough terrain. There, there's compacted terrain because it was an old logging deck. So there's a lot of things that go into this. But when you start implementing really good soil health practices and highly diverse seed mixes like the vitalized seed mixes that we use, and you're literally building the soil on these things. If and when you go to sell that particular piece of property or or the entire property, and people come and look and they go, "Wow, look at the soil here! Look at the pictures of the white-tailed deer! Look at the the quantity of the deer!" Right? It makes a big difference. Um, you know, versus if you just sold that as you know, hey, here's a, log, a compact logging deck. Yeah, maybe it'd be a good food plot someday. Right. right? You've done the work. You've built it up. So um, that's I've done that for my own personal passion because we want to make it the best 350 acres that we possibly can. Um, but, but that's added a, a ton of value. Even when people have toured the farm or what have you, they're like, wow, this is amazing. The work you've done. Um, and a lot of it started with my interest in soil health. Yeah. You know, um, from my experience with literally, I sell a couple thousands of acres of land every year. I walk probably tens of thousands. Every time I walk on a property where the guy's done just a little bit of management, even, with some tree stands, some food plots, some, maybe a couple orchards or a couple trees that are fenced in. And you can tell that they have made an attempt to um, 
improve the land, it sells for more. I mean, I, I'm we're talking, and I I don't want to guarantee this, but I just had a sale that went for I'm going to argue a thousand dollars an acre across a hundred acres, more than the average for that area, because the buyer um, that bought it said, "I've been looking, and I can't find anything as good as this." And I've been looking from in my area, Buffalo County, which is south to north. And this was in Barron County. And uh, I'll give a shout out to Lowell because I'm sure he's listening to this. Um, and he'll back this up. He says, I've been looking. I can't find anything as good as this. And I said, Lowell, you know, you're, the land in that area doesn't sell for that. Okay. It doesn't. I'm glad to help you buy it, but I just want you to know. And he's like, I realize that, but I'm willing to pay because this is pretty much turnkey. And the deer are, are above average for the area and as good as I've seen anywhere. And honestly, I'm willing to pay a little bit more. So the soil management and the management as a whole, it's just, it, it's proof positive that you, you it's more valuable and people recognize it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go a little bit into that. So um, now you're, um, you're a co-founder and owner of Vitalize Seed with Jared Van Hees. And um, you started this company just recently. So why don't you just take a few minutes? I know you already mentioned your land. Tell us who you are. Kind of set this uh, process up as the soil mad scientist expert. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, Albert Tumetro, like you said, um, you know, we started Vitalize Seed because, uh, well, co- to be quite honest. Recording in progress. Sorry. I, I had been managing property for uh 12 or 15 years, um, about 12 years on the same farm and started small. And we've continued to expand as a family as we've had opportunities to, um, you know, and a big focus there was around timber um, because, you know, that's kind of what our area is, is you have to understand your timber value and um, invasive species treatments and things. And it's a registered tree farm. And I've done all the work there. Um, So I always have had a passion for, for wildlife and hunting. Um, but really have had a passion for land management, um, probably equal to, to my passion for, for hunting whitetails. Um, also, uh, always love to have a huge garden. So um, some people joke, they go, it's, that's a mini farm. You know, I, I on an average year um, before I moved, it, it'd probably be a little bit smaller now, but I'd grow 200 plus tomato plants um, and 150, 130 to 150 pepper plants, plus your squash and your zucchinis and things like that. Are you a vegetarian um, or are you selling that? Well, the tomatoes I primarily would do um, to make sauce. So my both my grandmothers on both sides uh, were from Italy, okay. uh, and my wife's uh, grandparents are from Italy. So we would just grow a ton. I mean, you can buy them, you know, you can buy romas in bulk and do your sauce. But there's just something about growing them in your own soil and making the sauce out of your own growth. And um, you know that that's where a, a big interest of mine came from from a soil health perspective. Because I'm like I. I just didn't love the idea of going out there and just dumping miracle grow. Like something here just it just doesn't seem right. Like I'm I'm just dumping chemical to this plant to make it grow. Like there's got to be a better way. Um so that's kind of where I should get into you know vitalized seed because well, I mean to be honest with you, I was making my own mixes. I had done a bunch of reading and research and learning from the real experts. Um you know the Ray Archuletas and the Gabe Browns and the PhDs, the Ag PhD radio guys. Um you know, listening and reading to everything I possibly could and kind of putting the pieces together. How, how is this going to work on my farm and what do I want to use? So I started making my own diverse mixes. Um, and going back to the QDMA days, I don't know if you ever remember that QDMA forum, but there was a for, an old forum was quite popular. And Neil, if there, if there was one way how to do a food plot, there was 12,000. Like it was just yeah. so many different ways and so many guys, this will never work that one. And so I just was like, I got to just try stuff on my own. So I really 
stopped tilling my soil about six or seven years ago and just started implementing, um, you know, clover chicory blends. But then I, in the fall, I would broadcast into them, you know, to get a little bit more diversity. I started learning more and more about these uh, diverse mixes and kind of how one feeds the next. And the long story short is that uh, I started making my own mixes. I started writing on the Ohio Outdoors uh, Forum, uh, a no-till page, and I started sharing some of the stuff I was doing. And I started publishing some of it on Habitat Chat, um, the Facebook group. And um, I just was inundated with messages from people like, hey, can I buy your mix? I'm like, well, no, I don't sell my mix. I just I just make you it. just do you it. Know? Yeah. And, and I'm like, just go to a co-op. Or Well, what I found is that the far majority of the country, um, even in the Midwest, they go to a co-op. Co-op's like, I'm not going to sell you 2% of a uh, purple top turnip in your mix. You want turnip? Buy 10 pounds. And they're like, well, that's enough for like 10 years worth of turnip. You know, like it was just way too too grand of quantities for sale. Um, so I was like, you know what? There, maybe there's something here. And I started researching more and more the mixes that were out there. And there's a lot of great companies but I just didn't feel like anybody was fully encompassing all aspects of soil health from, you know, the, the diverse mixes, but then also not just saying, yeah, diversity is everything. And we're not going to look at soil samples. Like I'm like, I think, you know, we still need to look at soil samples and we still need to understand biological soil testing, like be it the Haney test or PFLA testing or, or whatever you want to get into there. But there's also a lot of agriculture. Uh, cultural science that goes into, or soil chemistry that goes into understanding soil structure in and of itself that I think was overlooked a lot. Like, yeah, I just use diversity and that fixes all problems. Um, and after talking to some big regen ag farmers, again, learning from those experts, um, I was able to confirm that. Like, they're like, yeah, we don't talk about it that much because it's just kind of known in the ag space that we all focus on on the, the idea of soil structure, be it your calcium, your magnesium, your potassium-based saturations. But we also understand the importance of biologicals. And because more people don't use cover crops, for the example of an ag, that's where a lot of their focus is from a talking perspective. So I didn't feel like anybody was covering all of those things and bringing it all to fruition. And, and you probably saw that in the text messages um, me and your friend were exchanging, you know, asking like, what about this? And what about that? Yeah. And trying to cover everything. Um, I also didn't feel like any of the mixes were efficient enough that they would blend or that the blends, excuse me, were building off of each other. So diversity is a beautiful thing, but too much carbon in a diverse mix isn't good. And too little carbon in a diverse mix isn't good. And not enough of different plant species isn't good, you know, and, and a monoculture isn't good. And I just felt like nothing out there was formulated how if I wanted to plant it on my farm, that's what I would use. So that's basically how it came to fridge. I called Jared. I'm like, hey, you have a great platform in the Habitat podcast. Um, you know, there has been some changes there where he did not have a uh, connection to a seed company anymore. I'm like, what do you think? And a lot of work later, and we, I mean, at the end of this month, uh, we'll, we'll be closing out on our first full year in business, you know, and going into the, the second spring planting season. Um, and, and that's kind of how we came to, too. And, you know, really the last summarization I'll give you is we have two seed blends right now. And will we expand? Likely someday we'll probably add a couple of unique things. But our main focus is two blends, one that feeds the next that feeds the next. In the simplest terms, if the spring feeds the fall and the fall feeds the spring and spring's going to feed the fall again, right? So, and you continue to rotate that. 
feed the soil, feed the wildlife, feed the pollinators, et cetera. Yeah. So the, so the listeners that are listening to this, all right, this idea of soil health, and we're going to, I'm going to let you go into it. I'm going to let you do your mad scientist stuff. We're going to get there, but let's start off at the very simple level and two things with the vitalized seed, there's the nitro boost planted in the spring, summer, and the carbon load that's planted in the fall. As you said, one feeds the next. So I started my system on my farm with carbon load this fall, and now I'm setting myself up for the spring. And we, we'll, I'll let you get into the difference, the, uh, the, how that benefits. Let's back up to this whole thing about soil health, because there's what, six principles or five, six, right? Okay. That's where I got turned on to this. So if you could run people through that, and that start off with Gabe Brown, Ray Archuleta, I think we're yes. right. The two kind of guys. So you can look yep. this up listeners. If you want to lo- learn about soil health, look up their, their videos on YouTube. I started, I found them. I stumbled across this thing because of challenges that I was having on my own property. And maybe I'll tell my story a little bit, but it started to really make sense. That's how I started. When they started talking about uh, regenerative farming on their ag farms, then I started hearing, as you said, on the Habitat uh uh, podcast and the, and the Facebook page, the guys are starting to, they were talk, talking about this and it started to make sense. So let's start with that. Let's l- go through the principles of soil health and then relate that to the two mixes, one, two process, very simple and how people yeah. can get their head around it. And then we'll go into soil health. Absolutely. So, I mean, number one, um, which I think this is one of the newer ones that that was added, you know, but it's know your context. Context. Um, yep. And, and that's so, so critically important. And the reason is, is because you have a lot of people say, I have heavy soil, I have light soil, I have a sandy loam soil, you know, and those are um, not really descriptive enough. And I'll get into some things that we can use that I think are a little bit better than using those more generic terms, because I've had people say, oh, I have a very light sandy soil. Um, and then when I look at a soil test and some of the metrics that are on the soil test, I'm like, your soil is light, but it's not as light as you're making it sound, Mm -hmm. right? Or vice versa. Somebody goes, I got a pretty sandy loam soil. And I'm like, your soil is very, very heavy. (laughs) You know, so knowing your context is very important because that's going to, it's going to help you to establish your your soil management plans, right? From a, are you going to till? Can you get away with tillage? What, if you, if you feel you have to till, what kind of damage are you doing, right? Obviously lighter soil tillage is going to do a lot more damage than, than maybe what you can get away with on a heavier soil, um, at least from a nutrient leaching perspective. From a fungal perspective, it's going to be pretty damaging um, regardless of, of, of soil context um, or soil type. Um, the second one is cover your soil. So this is where, where we come in, right, with our, with our mixes. You know, our, our carbon load um, is, is exactly like what it sounds. It's highly diverse. I think believe it's 16 species. Um, and it's balanced to have a higher carbon to nitrogen average ratio. What that means is the majority of the plants in that mix are going to take longer to decompose. So it's basically like slow release fertilizer than a lower carbon to nitrogen rated plant or average mix. And the reason that's important is because we want that soil to be covered. So we plant that in the fall. It starts to mature. Like, for example, one of the things in the mix is rye grain. Rye grain will bolt the following spring in the far majority of the United States. It'll get waist high, chest high, depending on where you're at and how tall you are, I suppose. Um, and when we will plant our nitro boost into that. When that carbon load is rolled over, mowed, sprayed, terminated of some sort, it's going to lay on that surface. It's going to create a thatch layer, 
the cover your soil number two here in, in soil health principles. soil armor as uh, grant woods calls it yes soil armor exactly so what's that's doing is one as you plan our nitro boost nitro short for nitrogen right when you have high carbon and you add nitrogen to the system it's going to help to expedite the microbial metabolisms of all those microbes in there. And it's going to make them to source, look for carbon sources. So it's going to break down that thatch layer. Now it's going to take time. By the time it's broken down, you're going to be planting carbon load into it again, but it's allowing your nitro boost to take advantage of all those nutrients, but it's also keeping your soil covered all spring and summer as your nitro boost is growing through that decaying carbon load. What it's also doing, Neil, which is very important, and this is where tillage, if you were to till all that in, you don't have your soil covered anymore. Rain is one of the leading um, contributors to soil compaction. Everybody thinks tractors and four-wheelers, and, and all, which of course, I'm, I mean, it's that it can compact soil. But rainfall, when it just pounds the soil and it doesn't have anything to slow it down or to, uh, for, that, for that water to actually infiltrate because you don't have it covered can be a main contributor to soil compaction. So it also helps to reduce soil compaction. Um, having your soil covered lastly, I mean, I could add a bunch more, but the last one I'll touch on now, just for sake of time, is a moisture retention. So think of in, in the spring. So you plant your, your spring mix, your nitro boost, and you got all these beautiful legumes in there, and you got some grains, you got all this diversity. And then you're like, man, I got a nice rain, and gosh darn it, we're not, we're not going to get rain for 10 days. And you would till that ground up. So immediately what's happening is all those seeds are germinating and then they kind of just fizzle out. The ground looks like cement and everything dries out. When you have your soil covered like that and those little seeds are slowly starting to germinate, think of an early spring morning in Ohio or Wisconsin or Michigan or, or most of the Midwest, right? You have high levels of humidity and it creates dew. Well, instead of that dew evaporating off or flashing off as soon as the sun starts to shine, you're holding that dew underneath that. It's like a tent or a greenhouse effect. So you're getting, even out of dew, you're getting better moisture retention for your crops by having that soil covered, um, which is also keeping your soil cooler, which we know is good for your, your microbial um, systems as well. You don't want your soil to be um, really hot. It'll actually burn off or kill off your microbes. All right. Yeah. You know, when I on my uh, plots, I had that rye thatch laying down. And once I terminated, I used glyphosate, but um I, this year I got the, uh, Packer Max HD crimper, uh, combo. So I'm going to be crimping it versus spraying it. But once I crushed that and sprayed it dead, I waited about a month and a half to, um, plant the carbon load. And I think I showed, sent you some video of this. I pulled it back and my soil looked darker. And I asked you, is this carbon or is this moisture? And you said, no, it's probably moisture. And I tell you what it was, uh, it was moisture. I was amazed at how cooler. My soil was underneath there during a drought that we had, and it was wet. I mean, I wouldn't say wet. It was moist. There was moisture there because of that protection. I mean, it was amazingly better. That soil armor was so important, and I had definitely positive uh, luck with it. Hey, at this point, let's just take a quick out here to mention one of our uh, sponsors, and that is the Packer Max HD, and then we'll come right back. All right, we're back. Okay, so soil armor. Keep your soil covered that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, I mean, that, that soil, um, you know, moisture retention is, is so critical. Um, so, so that's really important. Um, and also the last thing I'll say on that is, or the next item is it's minimize soil disturbance. So why is that important? Well, we could get into a lot of the biological aspects of this. 
Um, one of which is your fungal uh, network. So mycorrhizal fungi, uh, cytotrophic fungi, et cetera, uh, or sapotrophic, I believe it is. I can't pronounce I read it in books all the time, but my pronunciation- Fungi, fungal wrong. networks that are in but the your soil. fungal networks, right? Okay. Whether it's solubilizing nutrients in the soil, or if they're helping to break down high lignin filled crops in your on, on, your, on the surface of your soil. When you till those, you disturb those and you kill off a lot of your fungal networks and you make them a lot less efficient. Um, what's also important though, is when you till, you add oxygen to your soil profile. So now your soil is not covered, but you expedite the breakdown of your previous crop. So like you had that nice rye thatch there, Neil, and you were talking about how it was retaining moisture and helping to aid in the retention of moisture. Had you tilled all that under, the microbes are going to get that oxygen. When they get that oxygen, it's like, um, I have a, a friend who's kind of a mentor to me, big time farmer down in Georgia. I uh, mentioned him quite a few times. Um, and he said, you know, it's like giving, giving oxygen to microbes is like giving candies to candy to a toddler. It's just going to make it like really excited want to run around. It's the same thing with microbes. And they're going to consume all of that biomass and that high carbon very, very quickly. Well, that's not a good thing if you don't have plant, enough plants to take those nutrients in, because what's going to happen to them is not, now they're consumed, they're, they're solubilizing the soil, and where are they going to go? They're either going to leach out or they're going to be absorbed. And if you don't have enough plants there to take all that in at the time of which the, the nutrients are, are readily available, we're, we're going to be in trouble, right? We're just basically flushing them out of our system. And now all that hard work we did to grow those crops went to waste, not to mentioning the fungal network disruption, um, increased chance of erosion, increased chance of um, uh, soil compaction. So those are just the quick things to do. So why do we want to minimize the soil disturbance? Well, because of all those things I just mentioned. So what options do we have? We really like no-till. Um, no-till is can be very trying if you do not have a no-till drill. I really, really, really tell people though, if you're farming for yield, this is a different discussion. But for wildlife and hobby farmers and gardeners, et cetera, use what you have. If you have a bag spreader, use it and seed at 50% increased seed rate and come back in a week and say, okay, I'm going to touch up some of these thin spots or two weeks or three weeks, whatever your, your, your schedule allows and use a bag spreader. I've had a lot of success with that over the years. Um, last year, a good buddy, uh, Greg of mine, who's a distributor for us in uh, Southeastern Ohio down by Marietta, he and I used a two row planner. People go, oh, you never can use a two row planner with a really diverse mix. It's just going to spread, you know, it's going to separate right? Due to the vibrations. Neil, we were only doing an acre or two at a time. So we, you know, drill in an acre with this old two row Alice Chalmers planter. And then we jump off the tractor. We'd mix it up a little bit just to make sure it wasn't separating too bad. And we'd drop that thing back down and we'd go back the other, you know? So it's, I would imagine if you were running 30 acres, you probably would have separation, but if you're only doing acre, two acre, three acres at a time, and you have time to jump off the tractor, mix it up, take a sip of water, whatever, it takes two seconds. So that's something else that we did. Um, and it allowed us to really minimize our soil disturbance. Um, we were literally were able to just basically no-till drill, no-till planter. Um, and then this fall, um, we were able to use an actual no-till drill. But there are still some spots where it's more work than it's worth to get the tractor in there with the drill. So I'm still using just a bag spreader, spreading it in there. Again, minimizing that soil disturbance. Great. All right. Next point. Increased diversity. Um, that kind of speaks to itself, right? I mean, 
our mixes are, I think, 13 or 14 species in the spring and 16 in the fall. Um, I mean, we, we want to maximize diversity, uh, but it is planned. I always like to say it's planned diversity, as I've spoke to. We balance our carbon and nitrogen ratios in which we want to feed, you know, one to feed the fall and the fall to feed the spring, or one to feed two and two to feed one, however you want to word it. Um, but increasing diversity is a good thing. Um, I do think that we have to be careful with how we're doing it in understanding the plant species and um, in what you're in what you're planting. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll see things being planted in. There was a mix this year um, that I saw being promoted on a couple different places, and it was called. Uh, it was the name of it made it seem like it was going to be a really good diverse mix for for winter time. But like 90% of the mix was summertime annuals and people are planning in, in like August. And I'm like, unless you're in Louisiana, that pl- that's not going to have enough time to even get close to maturity. Um, you know, we balance all of our mixes and even the maturity rates of the seeds that are in our mixes. So if you plan our spring mix from April to June, when you're getting ready to plant your fall mix, almost everything in there, if not everything is in there, is going to have reached its maturity date. In that you know six, let's say sixty to ninety day window. So whether you're using our mixes, which I hope everyone will at least give us a you know give us a try, um, look at our website, give us a call. But if you're trying to do this on your own, keep those things in mind. It's it's a, it's a very critical to understand maturity rates and dates um, of, of your mixes if you're going to do this, and also what feeds what. Um, why is that important? Well, look at the next point. Keep a living root. So if we plant monoculture of brassicas. Neil, I bet you, you and I have seen some really good monoculture brassica plantings before. I've yes. grown a couple myself, you know. I was actually going to uh, say that because, you know, guys that are listening to this, close your eyes and picture a perfect food plot. Just close your eyes. What do you see? 99% of them see a beautiful green carpet of clover or a beautiful field of big, beefy, you know, brassicas, leaves, or even soybeans or corn. And when I got into this, a guy, I said this, the guy said this to me, he says, where in nature do you see monoculture anywhere? Only where humans impose their will, impose their will on the land, which is exactly what I was doing. I was hacking out food plots out of timber and I was cutting through that soil, turning it over. I had clay soil. If I didn't get something growing there and I had perfect conditions, I had, it baked and it got hard as a rock and all my seed was running off. And of course I was going for that big, beefy, you know, maximum biologic, you know, tuber with big leaves. That's what I wanted. And it, I think I said this to you, it's, it's taking some of my clients that I'm selling this and I, a a little bit of getting used to the look of a healthy field because of the diversity, because they're used to monoculture and that's not what we got here. we got 16 plants growing. They still look great and you're better off for it, but that's not what they grow. So, you know, this living root, increasing diversity and having this living root with a system versus having six weeks, eight weeks of one plant that grows, maximizes its foliage or whatever, expresses its full potential, and it starts dying. We're different. Vitalize is different than that. Absolutely. And and it's and where it really shines is because it's it, it definitely takes a trained eye, Neil, to understand what are those deer browsing on? You know, like even this time of year, a lot of people's food plots are eight to the dirt, right? I know mine, we have quite a high deer density um, in, in my own farm and even some of the other farms that I hunt and we've planted some fields. And 
you know, you, you can see some some brassica tubers and some nice sized turnips and stuff that the deer haven't quite got to. People are like, well, what else are they eating, right? Well, once you do this long enough, you know, realize, okay, they're they're finding that rye grain, you know, they're finding the the winter wheat or the triticale, et cetera, or, or some of the clovers and things. But where this really shines is if you took a, a monoculture of brassicas and planted an acre and right next to it, you planted our fall carbon load and then came back in March, that's where this is going to shine. Because what's going to happen is the brassicas are going to be eight to nothing. They're going to rot. You might have a little bit of regeneration the following following spring but not much. It's going to be primarily a barren field with likely some weeds coming up. Our plots are going to be super green. First things to green up, rye grain is going to start immediately trying to bolt as soon as the weather starts to get a little bit warm, you know, 38 degrees and some sunshine, your hairy vetch, your crimson clover, et cetera. And not only are you doing a great thing for wildlife, but you're doing a great thing for your soil and your microbes. So why is that important? Well, because you have a or you almost have a constant living room. I don't want to say it's every day because, of course, if there's so, complete uh, snow cover or something like that, but you're not planting something that just is dead, and then that soil is basically fallowed until something else is planted, and or you know weeds start to grow. So that's why having a diverse system helps to keep living plant roots going. Right? A lot of these, as you and I discussed, I think on the last time, they feed off of each other. You know, and then the last item, which again, this feeds into it is integrate livestock. You know, my take on this, Neil, we likely um, can't integrate livestock. I might have a, a good buddy of mine has chickens. So for my own garden, I might be doing some of that next year where I come in and let them pick at the, where I have the carbon load planted, you know, the turnip bulbs and stuff like that. Um, but on a large scale, you know, for, for planting 10, 20, 30 acres on the farm of, of food plots a year, I don't have the opportunity to bring in cows and graze them. I just don't simply have the time um, or the availability to that resource at this time. But we are doing this for wildlife. And that's where I tell people you can use them to your benefit, but you have to also understand how much are they removing from the field. Um, because integrating, integrating livestock is important, but going back to number one of knowing your context, if you listen to Gabe Brown or Ray Archuleta, or there's a ton of really good research out of Oklahoma state, they do what's called rotational grazing. So you're integrating livestock to remove, let's say one third of the two thirds of tonnage that are in an acre, uh, let's say quadrant before moving those animals strategically to that next acre. You don't want to remove too much tonnage because then photosynthesis stops and you stop feeding your soil because it's just the plant's too stressed to worry about photosynthesizing. It's just trying to survive at that point, right? So it's not really um, exuding uh, root exudates into the soil, but it's spending more of its energy into you know, putting into energy into its roots to try to get more nutrients to try to survive or grow. If it, is, if it isn't too overbrowsed, it'll die. So long-winded way of saying... When we look at this and you see 10 deer, 30 deer, whatever it might be for your area in your field, that's like, yeah, great. But let's not look past the importance of, of um, deer management or dome management, maybe I should say, and understanding, okay, I have a 10 acre field here. I've planted it. I put an exclusion fence up. The deer are hammering it. I wouldn't use that as the only um, measurement for, for deer management, but I would definitely use it as a, as a area to measure, especially if soil health is, is important to you. I would also look at native browser, do, do native browse surveys, talk to your neighbors, do all the things that you should do before taking an animal's life. Right. But, um, that's very important when you reach this point where you can have really good fields 
and good quality deer where they're not removing too much of the field, you've kind of hit that perfect threshold of, I have enough deer and I have enough food. And now you're feeding the soil, you're feeding deer and the deer are going in there and they're defecating and they're urinating and they're stomping and tramping and chewing and spitting in the saliva. All of the things that, that cows do on a little bit smaller scale. Right. right. And that's adding that additional level of diversity to that field. So um, I still think that we can do it. I just think we have to pay a little bit closer attention because we just simply can't rotational graze whitetail deer, um, at least wildly. Right. Well, we're doing the best we can. I heard Grant Woods uh, kind of talk about this, uh, you know, rotational grazing when he related to the great buffalo herds that would come across the plains and they would leave this swath of you know torn up ground and defecating piles of you know buffalo chips and just like you said saliva and urine and defecating and they would kind of somewhat disturbing the soil but the plants would just pop back up and they'd take off again and that's high diversity and that living root was always alive there had some soil disturbance but not a ton of soil disturbance. They definitely went doing what the settlers did, which is coming in there and ripping it open, turning it over, oxidizing it, exposing it, wind, rain, sun, all the nasty things. So when I, when I read, when I saw that and I read that and then I started to visualize, I'm like, okay, this is a little bit more complicated than ripping open your soil, dumping 300 pounds of triple 19 and tossing out some seeds and then sitting back and let it grow because that definitely helps and that definitely grows stuff. Hey guys, have you ever put down seed on your food plot and just didn't get the germination that you expected? Well, I did. And I tried to figure out why and I found out because I was skipping that final and possibly the most important step and that is using a cultipacker. A high quality cultipacker is one of the most underutilized pieces of equipment in the food plot industry today. And the Packer Max Cultipacker helps maintain that soil moisture retention, improves seed to soil contact, and ensures superior seed germination for all seed types. The extremely durable rotor molded polyethylene construction is lightweight when empty, allowing for ease of use and transport compared to conventional cast iron cultipackers that I used to use. Here are some of the other features of the Cultipax Packer Max Cultipacker. Number one, low cost, extremely durable construction. This is a quarter inch thick rotomolded polyethylene drum. Very, very tough. It offers superior compaction when filled with water or sand. I filled mine with water and it weighs up to about 400 pounds, but it's easy to move around. I simply put it on the ball hitch of my gator and away I go. Hey guys, give the Packer Max a try this spring. If you're not using a cult packer now, you got to give it a try. And when you give them a call, give them the promo code ALM25. American Landman 25, ALM 25, and get $25 off your purchase. Packer Max, Cultipackers, the best tool in the shed. What do you say to those guys? I mean, I just had this conversation yesterday with a guy at my gym, and there's just nothing I'm going to say to this guy at this point. I'm not trying to convince him and change him. Whatever, dude. I just want big bucks. And you can't tell me that corn and beans aren't getting me to big bucks. I'm like, they are getting you the big bucks but your soil's going downhill every year. It's getting a little worse, a little worse. Yeah. You know, I, I've been doing this for years. I go, yeah. So are the farmers, they've been doing it for years, old man farming, they rip it open. You can see the old skeleton, rusty machinery out in the field. They're getting more efficient. Now, instead of fertilizing their, their spraying and they're, and they're putting ammonia on what's that ammonia, whatever it is in the big tanks, right? There's stuff and chemicals in their soil because they're, they're, they're fighting mother nature. They're slowly, degrading their soil. So they have to pump it 
more full of fertilizer and chemicals to make it produce something and that is happening. And our food is becoming less and less nutrient dense. We've been hearing about this for years. And I'm like, that's what's happening to your soil when you're food plotting. Yeah, whatever. So I want to grow big bucks. How do you reach to those guys? What do you say to those guys? Or maybe you don't. Yeah, I, I think um, it's a it's a really great question and good point. And I think they they bring up a valid point, right? Because change is hard for anybody. Um, there's a few items that I always say to people, or, or at least for consideration, is like, okay, if you want to do corn because you like doing corn, do it. I'm going to do some corn this year. Some, but, but are you going to? You know, would you consider cover cropping with it? Absolutely. You know, would you consider? Um, you know, they have that that broadcast spreader with it goes on a leaf blower. I don't know if you ever seen yeah, I've that. Seen it. Yeah. It's pretty neat. You know, I don't have one, but I've heard really good reviews on it. You know, would you just put carbon load in there and spray it right through the rows of corn, you know, drive along the side and just have somebody sit in the back. Um, would you consider that? And here's why, right. And we can go into all of the things that we've just been discussing. Um, same with beans. You know, if somebody's like, I just, I need to have soybeans. Okay. That that's fine. I'm probably not going to change your mind from a, a monoculture of soybeans, but would you at least consider trying to cover crop those soybeans? So when things are starting to yellow or when things are, um, you know, you know that they're going to be yellowing within a couple of weeks, would you at least broadcast something else into them? Because those beans are going to die. And what's then is going to happen is you're not going to be able to get all of the nutrients available to the soil. And also in most cases, you know, most food plotting cases, when you have these monocultures, be it corn, be it soybeans, be it just brassicas, you don't provide enough food to truly feed the deer for a long portion of time. I mean, the deer go in there when that food source is hot and within a week, week and a half, two weeks, that food source is gone. When you plant these diverse mixes, you literally have available food for those deer all year. I mean, it's it's all year long. So guys say, oh, they, it doesn't attract deer. Well, I, I would disagree wholeheartedly. Well, also because everything that they're planting, they're just doing it in monocultures and we have it in our mix. Like you could plant our nitro boost. It has beans in it, a couple different types. You could plant it and don't terminate it. And just leave it stand and then go in in the fall and spread your brassica mix or your carbon load into that. And then you have the best of both worlds. So I would tell people that when you just are focused on soybeans and, and corn, there's a major cost also to inputs. So I'd also ask them like, well, how important is your input cost to you? And then the last thing I would say is if you're only planting, let's say an acre, let's just use that for simple talking purposes. How important is it to you to make that acre as attractive and highest quality food as possible? Because I could grow, I think I said this on the last um, podcast you and I did, but I bet you some serious money I could grow a big purple top turnip in my neighbor's gravel driveway. Like I'd, I'd put some serious money on it with, with inputs. I could grow in a gravel freaking driveway. Does that mean that that purple top turnip is high in nutrients because just because you grow something that's big and synthetically fed through inputs. Um, and I'm not against all inputs, but I'm just saying, I think we have to understand that we want to make, take an acre of, of land and by using diverse mixes and focusing on the soil and focusing on building the soil, which I'm starting to not like that. I haven't liked that term in a while because I think it sets somewhat of a false understanding of what we're really trying to do, but we're trying to make our soil as most efficient as possible. Right. And there's a lot of science that goes into that from the bacterial and the fungal networks and the communication, the phytochemical um, conversion and the amino acid to, to protein conversion, right. Of the nitrate uptake and all of these things that are happening within the plants. 
which then equates to better digestibility for that ruminant animal, or for us, if we're picking a tomato off the vine, right? There's a reason they always, you know, grandpaps tomatoes tasted better than everybody else's, right? There's a reason for that. Well, so I share all of that with you because if I take an acre and only plant it in a brassica plot, number one, I'm going to put a bunch of synthetic fertilizer down. Yeah, maybe it grows something good some years, maybe some years it doesn't. Um, but when you use these diverse blends, I mean, I've witnessed it on my own farm. The attraction is, in my case, I've had better attraction by when since using diverse blends than anything else I've ever planted. And I used to plant monoculture or soybeans, didn't have a weed in them. I had monoculture as brassicas. Nothing attracts deer for the duration of time like diverse blends because there's always something growing. And then, like I said earlier, you talk about springtime. And now you want to talk about guys who really love deer and they really want to grow big, big deer and they want big deer to be around for a while. Well, now you've turned your food plots into bedding areas for wildlife. If you let that stand, like some guys are like, I just, I'm just going to do an acre and I'm just going to let it stand until the following fall. You'll have chest high rye grain, clovers, hairy vetch that's climbing up rye stalks that's chest high. The turkeys and the deer and the birds and the bees, everything is in there feeding. Oh, and also the stuff that's happening in the soil is really cool too. And it's reducing your need for inputs. So for me, if I want to impact my deer in my farm, in my neighborhood, what do I need to do? In my area, the limiting factor is green food. It's not woody browse. There's thousands of acres of clear cuts. There is no agriculture. So it's, it's green food space, number one limiting factor. So for me, if I can reduce my input costs other than diesel and some time on a tractor, and I can plant more food and make the soil better, make the soil more efficient and have higher quality nutrient dense food that's full of phytochemicals and things like that that are actually, well, there's, that's a whole different discussion, but they, they have a ton of additional health benefits, both from personal and animal health, from better digestibility, better amino acid to protein conversion in the plants. And now I'm doing that on a larger scale because guess what? All my input costs aren't going towards one acre. I'm able to spread those costs out because I'm not using a whole ton of inputs. I'm using regenerative practices. So now instead of planting one acre, I'm planting two, I'm planting four, I'm planting 10. You know, this year I'll probably plant upwards of, oh gosh, uh, I'd say between 20 and 30 acres. Mm-hmm. Now that's scalable. You're adding 20 to 30 acres of food for your whitetail herd. Now you're, you, you, you know what I mean? Like, and not everybody's going to get to that scale. And there's a lot who are a lot bigger than that. But my point is that with that slight change in, in attitude or perception as to how we're doing these things, you, you really can add better quality food, longer time, longer eating period for the whitetail, better quality regeneration the following spring, and better soil quality and less dollars in inputs. I mean, yeah, that's hard to argue against. Yeah, I've got a couple of listeners that have been hearing me talk about this on my Facebook page, and they reached out to me and said, you know, reducing input input costs makes a lot of sense to me. I know you hardly use any nitrogen this year. I said, I really didn't. I might have had more volume if I would have put some in there. I'm only my first year. So I've been recommended maybe 25% a year. I think I originally heard that on uh, Growing Deer TV. 25% a year until year four or five. You got to stick with the program. But as your soil gets better and better and better and more healthy, you'll need less cost because you're you know, with a nitrogen boost, you're sequestering nitrogen that's already in the atmosphere right over the top of your soil and you're pulling it in and that's another whole this conversation but just suffice it to say all the nitrogen you need can be pulled into the soil by those beans that you're planting in your mix and i kind of dumb it down a little bit but it just makes sense if you think about the the nutrient density of your food that sweeter taste of grandpa's tomato that you remember versus the stuff you go to the grocery store now and it just doesn't have any 
flavor. It just, I mean, you're eating it, but it just doesn't, but that doesn't taste the same, but you're walking through some old farm and you see, uh, you know, granddad's apple tree and you pick one, you crunch into it and man, your taste buds dance. I think that's what the deer experience because they're selective herbivores they are walking through, they're picking and choosing and they move on. So yeah, the, the principles of soil health guys, if you're listening to this, go look it up, just do Google search or a YouTube search, soil health, Gabe, Gabe, or Ray Archuleta, Gabe Brown, or uh, Ray Archuleta, you'll learn a lot. All right, so let's move on from that. That was a great setup. Now let's get into probably the single most important step of doing this process of getting started, and that's starting a soil test. So this is where you get to go mad scientist on us and talk about it. Try to keep it as simple as you can, but I'm going to give you your time. Yeah, let me just at least hit the high points. So um, it's no secret, we use Ward Labs. You can buy them on our website. Um, in full transparency, it's the same price that you're going to buy them off off Ward from. Um, the reason I like Ward Labs is one, they're really good people, which is important. I think um, they they've been they're they're scientists. I mean, even uh, Doctor Ray Ward, who founded Ward Labs many many moons ago, um, and is extremely well known in the soil health and agricultural industry. Um, you know, he's answered my emails before, which is pretty pretty amazing, right? Yeah. So I really like them. They're great people. Whether you buy them from us, or you just go direct to them. Um, I highly recommend them as a good lab. Um, we typically have uh, two different versions, right? So they have a soil health assessment, which in- includes some uh, biological measurements like CO2 burst and things of that nature. I'm not going to get into the semantics of that, but if you're really into like, what's the biological components of my soil, um, the soil health assessment is a good one. It, it takes the Haney test as well as some uh, conventional soil testing, kind of combines it all into one. It's a little bit more expensive than a conventional soil test. Um, and then of course there's like, I think they call it the S4, but it's just a conventional soil test. What I like about Ward is Ward's going to give you your soil pH, which is important, right? So how acidic or alkaline is my soil? Um, there are charts out there that you can refer to that will show you as you get to closer to seven, the highest level of nutrients are available, um, in mass, but not all nutrients are available at equal parts. So for example, iron is actually more available at lower pHs. That's why you'll see a lot of recommendations for if you're growing blueberries to keep your pH around five. Um, Most crop species for forage, um, I don't want to say all because I'm sure somebody will say, oh, you forgot about this. But I I will say the far majority of crop species, you want to be in that 6.8, 7, 7.8 you know, or try not to get higher than seven, but around that 6.5 to seven is is ideal um, for most of those. Uh, The next thing that they'll give you is of course, organic matter. Believe it or not, Neil, I've seen a lot of people have submitted soil samples to me and they don't even have an organic matter reading. And I'm like, okay, um, goodness gracious, we need, we need to to have this. Um, It just, it tells us a lot like, well, what's our starting point, right? Um, Organic matter, there's, you can, again, look this up. There's a bunch of charts that will tell you um, the amount of nutrients that you're going to get for every percent of organic matter. There's charts that'll explain what your soil or excuse me, water holding capacity is relative to your organic matter level in the soil. A lot of that you don't need to know, like you don't have to have it memorized, but it's still good to know. So you can say, okay, if I get 20 pounds of nitrogen for every percent of organic matter slowly released throughout the growing season, right? When, when temperatures are warm and microbes are doing their thing, gosh, I got 4% organic. I'm going to get 80 pounds of nitrogen released throughout the year. You know, if I am still doing inputs, do I need to trickle on that third application of nitrogen or do you think I'm good with just two? Right there, you might've reduced an entire 
application just by understanding organic matter mineralization, right? Um, the other items I like that they give is they'll give you a nitrate reading in parts per million, and then they'll convert it to pounds, which is basically just times two PPM to pounds, um, is always just um, by a multiple of two, but, uh, or at least roughly is, but what that does is they'll give you zero to six inches. So as long as you use your soil probe to say, take six inch depths, which is my recommendation. Um, there are some people who recommend six and three quarters, but, uh, to get, they want to get a little bit of the anaerobic zone. Again, for most food plot applications or garden applications, I think a six inch is, is adequate. Um, I take six inch probes, stick them in there and then uh, let them know that on your soil test, but they'll give you the nitrate reading. Well, as we know, nitrate is the most readily assimilable form um, of nitrogen, you know, so it wants to be taken up right now. Um, and also it could be the most leachable form. So we want to get a root in the ground as soon as possible, um, especially one that, that likes nitrogen. So it'll tell you, hey, you got 24 pounds of nitrogen sitting within zero to six inches. It's just sitting there ready to get used up, right? So that's, a, I, I think, a really good reading that a lot of other soil labs, um, specifically kind of your, your off-the-shelf stuff, won't won't provide. So let me ask you two questions. Please. Um, probe. So you're talking about one of those, got a handle, it's got a tube, you go down, you push yes, it down, yep. turn it, pull out a soil tube. Okay. Second thing, when, so I, I was using Whitetail Institute um, uh, soil tests and I would go out with my shovel and a clean bucket and I'd dig probably about six inches down, do a grid around my food plot, mix it up, throw, I don't know, you know, whatever, a quart of it or less in a bag and send it in. Um, do I need, I guess, is that method okay? Number one, a little spade and a shovel. Number two, when I did my food, uh, my soil test with Whitetail Institute, they asked me, what was I planting? And there was beans, corn, brassicas, or I could literally write in the brand because I was using their test with their seed. But now I'm using yours. I'm using a mix. There's like 16 seeds in here. What do I put down? Does does Ward give you a report back that's applicable to that mix, I guess is my question. Yeah. So when you're doing... so. To answer your first question, can you use a shovel in a bucket? Yes. Um, like anything, the more variables we can eliminate, um, the more accurate it's going to be, right? So most of my soil samples have been grid-style soil sampling for the last several years. I feel that I am now at a position where I have enough consistency over the last, say, four or five years of data that I now want to start either GPS coordinate or because the <laughs> service is very difficult at my farm. Um just putting in like a T post, like three or so four. So you know you're picking from the same spot every time. And you do four around each T post. Yeah. You're really reducing more variability. And you're also like my soil probe, I have electrical tape at six inch depth. So I don't guess at six inches because I could take 12 inches if I wanted to. I know that when that soil hits that electrical tape, I'm at six inch depth every yeah. single time. All right. So consistency is important. So will the other thing work? Sure. I mean, it, it will, but you, it's also why you have guys say, man, I did this for one year and I went from 3% organic matter to 10. Well, eh, probably not. I hope, you, <laughs> I hope you did, but it's highly. And then the next year they go back to two and they're like, oh my gosh. Well, it had probably had to do with, with was the residue on the top of the soil. Cause again, a soil probe, you're not going to get much residue. You're only taking a, a small probe, right? Of the soil. So maybe it's an inch circle in diameter. Um, so you're not getting a, that much residue with a shovel. You tend to get a lot of, um, 
top residue. And you can try to scrape it off and stuff, but that's just my experience. So for 80 or 100 bucks, if you like this stuff, I'd get a soil probe in right. my, in, in my um, it also is a lot faster, believe it or not. It actually speeds up your process um, quite a bit. So especially once you get good with one. Um, Let me ask you a question. Are you, are you leaving the T posts out in the field? So, you know, you're coming back to the same spot every time. Yeah, that's what I'll be doing. Yeah. So I haven't done it yet. Um, but after this year, I just decided that I want to start doing that. Um, just to, to, again, eliminate another variable. Yeah. Interesting. So, and I'll probably try to do it in one acre grids. Um, so like I have a couple of fields that are around three acres, so I'll do three separate soil samples from that, you know, uh, I'll do like one acre South pipeline, middle pipeline, one acre North pipeline or something yeah. along those lines. And that way I really can understand. And then maybe if I'm, if it's, again, if it's very consistent between the three, well then maybe I won't do that, but I'll just simply follow it as, as a grid style along those T posts. Right. But anything you can do to eliminate variables is important because now we're not just looking at, okay, what if we do have to add some inputs, be it lime, be it nitrogen, be it potassium, don't you want to only add it where you have to? Like that's, like, wouldn't you, do you want to, I don't know about you, but if I only have to put potassium on one acre because the base saturation is, is 0.0, like, you know, right. it's at zero, wouldn't you rather just put that or gypsum? Let's say my calcium base saturation is really low and I want to add some gypsum to, to add, get my calcium up. Well, I'd rather spend money on one acre than three if only one acre really needs it. And the rest of it, I just put on there because I didn't take an adequate soil sample. So for extra 40 bucks, to do two additional soil samples, it's like that probably will save you several hundred in input costs over a couple of years. Yeah. I've got uh one, two, three, four. I have five fields and I'm doing a separate soil test in every one. Um, might have to really go mad scientist and put out some stakes. If I really want to get crazy, I'll geomark myself. I don't know if I'll do that quite yet, but uh yeah, I can see the staking, I can see a probe, everybody can do that and just pick the same locale every single time for consistency. And then my uh, good friend, Jeff Bartig, who's an, in, who's an engineer, the guy that you talked to, uh, he gave me a spreadsheet. So I've been spreadsheeting mine now for two years, and I'm pulling out some of the key indicators that I'm kind of tracking. And I'm just going to – I'm a sales guy. I'm not an engineer. This isn't, like, intuitive for me. But I've been tracking now for two years. I'm, look, I'm, I'm interested to see uh, how, how I look over the years. But I'm not necessarily grid – gridding my fields and pulling from the same location. So I'm going to have to, maybe I'll just get some surveyors flags and just stick it out there. So I know I'm pulling. That's a good so idea. I'll do that. So, all right, well, let's get into the soil testing a little bit. There's a lot of information on those soil tests and I'm sure. Oh, it's I all- didn't want to, I apologize, Neil. One other thing you, yeah, had, go ahead. you had asked about, you had asked about what do you put down? And I know somebody's going to be like, Hey, they didn't cover that. So, so what do you put down on the soil test mix? And does Ward give you yeah. uh, recommendations? Yeah. So when you, when you fill out a mix, for or a, a soil sample for Ward, Whitetail Institute, it doesn't matter who. And I've used Whitetail Institute, great, great company, um, great people there too. But when you fill out a form and you say, I'm growing corn, typically if you went to an ag co-op, right? And they're probably using rough metrics, but let's just say they're going to generate, he wants to grow 150 bushel per acre corn. That's what their, their algorithm is going to generate. It's okay. Well, how many N, P, and K units does he need to grow that type of crop. And that's what's going to then be generated below hand. They typically, I don't want to say, you know, talking absolutes, but typically you do not have even organic matter of mineralization taking into account for those fertilizer recommendations. So like I said earlier, you might have 80 pounds of N being released 
throughout the year. That's just like, man, that if the corn plant uses it good, if not, you know, no worries, right? It's we're not going to worry about that because we want to hit 150 bushel per acre corn. So we're going to tell this grower that he needs to put down X number of units of N, P, and K regardless. So that's kind of how those are generated. Not a bad way, not a good way, just just the way in which they're, they're typically generated. Ward will, you can put in there, I, I want to grow a cover crop mix, and you can put in there 60% grains, 30% legumes, you know, whatever you want to put, right? Like if you want to break it up that way, or just cover crop mix, and they're going to know in general, you could put highly diverse, what's going to be encompassing there. Could you just and name, might, could you just name, I'm putting down nitro boost, or I'm putting down carbon load, and they'll understand that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, they we work with them pretty closely. So, so they sure would they know. Would, if you okay. put like vitalized seed carbon load or something like that, they would look in there, and they will give you recommendations based on that. Um, we really... Take the recommendations of the grain of salt. Like you said earlier, you know, I, I always tell people, depending on their soil tests and, and kind of what soils are looking like and what the previous management of the soil was, do we want to go 10%, 25%, or can we go zero, right? Can, can we not not worry about, um, you know, a bunch of fertilizer and, or can we get away with a full year, um, you know, full year feed fertilizer in the first year or two before maybe not having to use it again? Um, so that's just some other things to mention, but you can surely put a cover crop mix in there and they'll give you some recommendations as to, um, you know, what type of nutrients might be needed. Great. All right. Well, that was my question. All right. Dive into the, I know there's a million ingredients uh, that you could look at, but for the sake of the average guy here, that's working his way up the knowledge chain. What should we pay attention to? Yeah. Let me give you a last couple of things that I like that they do just high level. Um, I do like that they give you, um, your micros at Ward, uh, I think that's really important. So it gives you, um, you know, your zinc, your iron, your copper, et cetera, um, which, you know, it's not every single micro, um, but it's it's quite a few of them uh, that are important. And it's nice to just at least you mark them, you save them and you see, hey, are my micros increasing, decreasing, you know, staying the same. Um, so I like that. A, a lot of labs don't do that, especially for, for um, you know, for wildlife plantings. If you've got the root exodus and you have that diversity of root, and your soil is becoming healthier, you're going to see generally see those micronutrients improving generally? Well, you should really be seeing quite a, almost everything um, in, improving. And, and one of the things that's going to make a difference there is timing of soil sampling, right? Because are the nutrients up in the plant? You know, where are the nutrients at the time of the soil sample? So one of the other things that we want to do to measure our baseline success is not only looking at the plants and seeing the plants and seeing the soil and smelling the soil. And what does it look like? Right. Remember last time we talked chocolate cake and, you know, you kind of went through that descriptive uh, measure, but we also want to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples. So like I try my hardest to soil sample March of every year. Like that's when I soil sample my farm, because if I try to soil sample March and then uh, the next year I'm comparing it to a soil sample in July. Well, the temperature in, in right. Ohio is significantly different. So the microbial activity is going to be significantly different. So the the rainfall is going to be different. So the nutrient solubility is going to be different, et cetera. I'm um, April. And I, you know, I thought about this, that I was going to go back out in the fall and I thought, well, gosh, I want to know what I need ahead of time. So I'm going to take them in the fall. But now you're telling me, no, I've been doing it in April, stick in April. I don't. I wouldn't say no. I don't think it's a bad idea to do it in the fall, um, but I wouldn't get discouraged if you see discrepancies between your previous sample in April and now, or the opposite. I wouldn't be like, look at how great my soil is doing from April to now, because a lot changed in that time frame, yeah. and you're sampling at different times of year. So you're back to so, the consistency, Rick. Yes. So if you're going to do fall, then just compare it to next year, do fall again. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing, none of this is going to happen overnight. 
So it's like, hey, if you're going to do fall, okay, but let's plan three for the next three years. Let's pull soil, fall soil samples and let's compare them. You know what I mean? Like, let's not worry about one time pulling soil. Okay, we're going to do it in the fall now and let's do it for the next three years and then compare. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so let me get into the last two items I want to talk about on ward soil labs, but you can generate these from, from several that I think are, are, are most critically important is um, your CEC. So we talk about soil types, right? Um, your CEC is your uh, cation exchange capacity, uh, which is basically your ability for your soil to hold nutrients, right? Um, when you look at your CEC, it's going to give you a number rating. And there's charts out there. They'll show you zero to five falls under sandy soil, five to 10 falls under sandy loam, and, and so on and so forth. When you look at this, though, and you see a soil that's you know above eight, okay, that's, you know, eight's a, a fairly light soil but it's not real, uh, real light. And it's certainly not real heavy. Other soils might have 30 CEC. Typically those are going to have higher levels of organic matter, but they're also going to have, they're going to be real heavy. They're going to be defined as, you know, guys are going to say, oh, it's like clay. It's like a brick factory. <laughs> now I have to till it because all those things. Um, so that without that number, which a lot of soil samples will leave that off. You're simply guessing on what the soil looks like. And I'll give you a quick example of my own life, Neil. So my wife and I had, had recently bought a house and uh, well, we built, we built the house and moved. And I being liking growing stuff, I'm not paying anybody to put my yard in. I'm doing it myself. And I go out there and I'm with a shovel and I'm feeling the soil well before I ever do soil probes. I'm like, man, this is light soil. You know, this is sandy. Like I could almost see the sand. Like I'm like, this is sandy soil. I go and send in my soil. I had an uh, soil samples, I don't know, a couple months later, I had an 18 CEC soil. And I was like, wow, that's far heavier. Like, again, Sandy's like between zero and eight, you know, it's like a lighter soil. I was like, that is far heavier than I ever would have expected that particular soil to be, right? Um, <clears throat> so, and I look at a lot of soils. That I, I mean, I did probably, I don't know, even know how many soil samples I did last year. Yeah, couldn't even keep track of it. Um, and I was, I was wrong, flat wrong by just trying to look at it from, from the naked eye and make an observation. So that's why when you're getting a source, a CEC re reading, in my opinion, is critical, um, is of critical importance. And you can also compare that year to year, uh, which is also important. This, this, the last item is your base saturation reading. Um, typically that's going to be your calcium, your hydrogen. Uh, if they if your pH isn't totally balanced, your hydrogen will show up. Um, your uh, potassium, and then your magnesium. So the reason this is important is calcium and magnesium and potassium make up your soil colloid as well as a lot of other uh, other things on the soil colloid. But people will often say, man, my soil's so tight. It's a heavy soil. Yet we'll, we'll look at the CEC and we'll go, it's like a seven CEC. Your soil should be like sandy. You know, like, how is it so tight? Well, I'll look at the magnesium-based saturation. It'll be 60%, just for talk purposes, right? I'm throwing these numbers out, but it'll be very, very high. And ideally, you know, we for a lower CEC soil, we might want it around like 18 to 20, you know, 25% for wildlife. We thought it wouldn't be horrible in your magnesium level, but magnesium is a much smaller molecule. It's going to be, so, so when you have a high percentage of magnesium on your soil colloid, you have a small molecules tightly packed. Calcium is a much larger molecule. So when you have a higher percentage of uh, calcium, excuse me, on your on your soil profile or soil colloid, as it's called, you're going to have a more porous 
soil because it's spaced out more. Um, so again, why it's so important to understand your CEC and your base saturations is it tells us, okay, well, now let's say we have a soil that is 6.2 pH, 50% calcium uh, base saturation, 18% magnesium base saturation. And we go, well, we need to add some lime. Well, your magnesium is, and, and let's say the CEC of the soils is like 18 or 20. So it's relatively higher CEC. Well, you look at that, you go, well, we don't need more magnesium. You already have an inherently high CEC. It's already you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, whatever we, we decided it is. But we know we want to get our calcium base saturation on that soil type around 70%, 72%, 68%, 75%, somewhere in there, definitely higher than the 50 that it's at. So now we can go to the co-op because we know our, our pH is only 6, six or 6.2, whatever I said. Now we go to the co-op and we say, hey, I want high cal lime. I don't want dolomite lime. I don't need the magnesium. Why would I spend the money on magnesium? My soil's already has enough magnesium that it's tight. I want this soil to be looser. I want the soil to be more porous. So I'm going to increase my lime or increase my uh, calcium with a high cal lime. I'm going to increase my pH. So now I've balanced my pH. I'm working on my calcium base saturations. I'm adding porosity there, getting better water infiltration because of this, which is going to give you better uh, opportunity for nutrients to be soluble and flow through the root channels and throw, flow through the soil, right? All of these good things. And now we're adding all of the elements of the six soil health principles. So you're just further building on that. So I could go into a lot more about that, but I'll, I'll stop talking on it. But I just, I look at so many samples and it kills me that these are often left off because it's of such critical importance to understand. It's like the foundation. You know, you got to understand your, your base saturations and your pH, like let's just in, in your CEC, let's just get those things understood on a soil sample. And then all the other stuff, you know, what should my parts per million of zinc be if I want 240 bushel per acre corn? Like it, there's calculators out there. You could get into that. Even if, if you're an agricultural farmer, like we could get go through that. But this is at least a good starting point to have a good understanding of kind of wh where you're at. Right. Well, I know personally, you started losing me at base saturation. <laughs> I was hanging with you, but my knowledge is coming up slowly, but surely as my good friend, Jake Eilinger says, Neil, it's a process. Okay. You don't, these changes don't happen overnight. It's a process, which the journey's half the fun, right? That's, that's the half the fun. Um, and we are now at a minute and 10, uh, one hour and 10 minutes. So we need to wrap this up because we're going to start losing people. If people want to talk to you, you can't talk to all of us because you're just going to be inundated with us. If they're a client of the company and buy and seed, I'm sure you're as available as you can possibly be. Is that a fair statement? Oh, yeah. I would tell guys, you don't have to plant 30 acres of this seed mix of Vitalize, either carbon load or nitro boost this spring. Start with an acre. I think last year, I'm a distributor in Western Wisconsin. I think I ordered half a pallet. So that's roughly what, 20 acres-ish. Um, so I got 20 acres in my part part of the state and I'm hoping to double that. That's my goal. And uh, I asked a couple guys that, you know, they're corn and soybean guys. I said, okay, fine, stay corn and soybean. Just consider starting with an acre. I'll sell you a bushel, maybe bush, maybe two, because you have to, you're broadcasting depending. And let's give it a try. Do your soil tests, use Ward, give Al a call because he's available. He might not be available forever if this thing blows up, which God willing and the creek don't rise, that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to try to sell, we're going to convert the whole world, but you know, one bushel at a time. So 
if you're open to this, do you want to give out your numbers, uh, give out your website? Yeah, I, make I yourself think the best available. thing is, um, is vitalizec.com, contact us page. Um, my my phone number's there. You can call, text me, um, and also then the um, my email, which is probably the best way because I'm going to have a bunch of questions for you. And if I can sit there and go, okay, send me your soil tamp- sample yeah. and let's go over this. Let me review it. And then maybe we'll have a phone call um, thereafter. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Albert, uh, at vitalizec.com or just go to vitalizec.com, contact us and all my information's there. It'll get to you. Um, and you can, can send it on over and, and yeah, I'll talk with you because how much, you know, it, it all goes down. How much do you want to learn? How much do you want to get into it? But, uh, I agree. Give it a try because I really, really, really believe, um, if you give it a try and like, like Jake says, Jake's a great guy, you know, super knowledgeable, been doing this stuff for a long time. It's a process. and just like anything, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, but if you're interested in having really healthy soil and really healthy food plots and highly attractive food plots and reducing your input costs, we can definitely make that yeah. happen. Yeah. I don't want to say, I want to make clarity. I don't think Jake's planting your blend. I think he's with uh, Northwood's uh, Whitetail Seed Blend, but hey, he's a great guy and I talked to oh, him Oh yeah. Time. I'm not sure. I think he does quite a few different things. Does he? I've followed his YouTube channel for years. I'm not sure, honestly, but um, I just know Jake from- Jake, are you listening? And stuff and he's just- uh, <laughs> You know, he's a wealth of knowledge when even, oh, when yeah. to, like, even when it comes to cutting timber, right? Like, you know, going in and, and felling trees and stuff. It's like, you know, somebody might, let's just use a hinge cut, for example, something Jake, Jake has done for years. It's like, oh, or, or a flush cut. Hey, this is a bedding area. Deer aren't going to, you go, well, deer didn't use it the first two, two months. What's well, a process. It's going to take some time. Yeah. You're going to find it. They're going to realize, hey, this is a safe haven. Hey, there's no pressure. Like, you know, it's the same idea with soil. You know, it takes time. It's that process. I got to get him on here. I haven't been able to, but he's like, you know, when I come in and I cut your land, uh, you're not going to like me after year one, but year three, four, five, you're going to love me. And mm-hmm. it's going to be the same for the uh, vitalize. All right, Al, I really enjoyed this. I, it was, I'm soaking it up. I, every time I talk to you, I learn a little bit more. Vitalizeseed.com. Well, guys, go check it out. I think you're going to like it. Al, I'm going to let you go. I hear the kids in the background. You got to get back to it. Thanks a lot. I, again, I say this, I'm not going to say this again. I got to have you back. We're doing a food plot series. We're going to jump into another topic, break it down. Thanks for your time, buddy. Thank you. All right. We'll see you.